Hi all, John here. Just wanted to let you know before the episode started that when we recorded this episode, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty, and at times it sounds like I'm talking through a phone. It's something we've since corrected, but just wanted to let you know before we began. Thanks a lot, and enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you? I am doing fantastically. I'm still up in upstate New York at the Fort Salem Theater in beautiful Salem, New York. And we've just finished our first show of our summer season, and we're about to head into our second. And it's good to be back to work. How about you? I am doing great, John, since we last spoke. I finally got married. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great. It feels so good. We've been having a lovely time, and uh, I'm excited to be back here with you doing this show. Same. So this week, we're going to talk about The Mystery of Edwin Drood, music, lyrics, and books by Rupert Holmes, who you may actually know as the singer-songwriter behind Escape, or what you may actually know it as, the Pina Colada song. And Edwin Drood is based on the unfinished Charles Dickens novel of the same title. The Mystery of Edwin Drood opened on December 2nd, 1985 at the Imperial Theater and closed on May 16th, 1987 after playing 608 performances. The show was directed by Wilfred Leach with choreography by Graciela Danielle and musical direction by Michael Starobin. The original cast included Betty Buckley as Edwin Drood and Miss Alice Nutting, George Rose as Mayor Thomas Sapsey and Chairman William Cartwright, Cleo Lane as Princess Puffer and Miss Angela Prysop, Howard McGillan as John Jasper and Mr. Clive Paget, and Patty Cohenauer as Rosa Budd and Miss Deidre Peregrine. The Mystery of Edwin Drood was nominated for nine Tony Awards and won five, including Best Musical, Best Original Score, and Best Actor in a Musical. The Mystery of Edwin Drood is presented as a play within a play, and it begins with the cast members of the Music Hall Royale walking through the audience and introducing themselves to the folks who have come to see this evening's performance. Eventually, this mingling builds into the opening number of the show, led by the chairman of the Music Hall Royale, wherein all the players of the company are introduced. As the performance of the evening begins, we meet John Jasper and Edwin Drood. Jasper is Drood's uncle, and they are close friends. But Drood is engaged to Rosa Budd, Jasper's music student, and his obsession. Dun, dun, dun. Rosa becomes aware of Jasper's obsession at her next lesson when she sings his song, Moonfall, which does little to mask Jasper's true feelings. We meet a few more characters from Ceylon, Helena and Neville Landless, accompanied by Reverend Chris Sparkle. Neville is instantly attracted to Rosa, which, naturally, 
makes him a rival to both Jasper and Drood. Surely, nothing nefarious will happen, though, right? The chairman then takes us to an opium den in London, where Princess Puffer sings about the wages of sin. Jasper, one of Puffer's clientele, calls out Rosa's name. Puffer, ever looking for a way to get ahead, notes this with great interest. In the following scene, the chairman is forced to step into the play to perform a character whose actor can't get to the stage. Unfortunately, that character is supposed to argue with the chairman's actual character in the show, Mayor Sapsi. This greatly confuses the chairman, and he joins Jasper in a song where the two men sing about their conflicting minds. Jasper's conflict about his feelings for Rosa versus his nephew Drood, and the chairman just in general about what he's doing. The audience learns, from a drunken stonemason, Dirtles, that Edwin and Rosa have called off their engagement. As a parting gift, Rosa has given Drood her hair clasp, which used to belong to her mother. Moving forward to Christmas Eve, Jasper has invited Helena and Neville Landless, Reverend Chris Sparkle, Rosa, and Drood to a reconciliation dinner. Tempers flare between Neville and Drood, Helena and Chris Sparkle worry about Neville's reputation. It is also revealed that Chris Sparkle used to be in love with Rosa's mother, who died after Rosa's birth. The dinner falls apart, and the guests depart out into a treacherous storm. Before the action continues, there is a brief pause for the company member playing Bazard to sing about how he never gets to play a major part in their shows. It's now the next day, and Drood has vanished. His torn coat has been found by the river where Drood was last seen walking with Neville. Dun, dun, dun. Chris Sparkle defends Neville, and Jasper swears to find Drood's killer. Before diving into this task, he declares his love for Rosa, which naturally horrifies her. She runs off stage, and Jasper pursues her as Act 1 ends. Act 2 begins six months later, and there is still no sign of Drood, but much speculation about what has happened to him. Puffer has been investigating the disappearance, as has the mysterious Dick Datchery, played by the same actor of the company who was playing Drood. The cast of the show sing a song that summarizes the action thus far, and warns the audience not to fall back on your assumptions. Soon, the audience will be asked to vote as to who the killer actually was, and as this song approaches a climax, things begin to fizzle, and the chairman appears to announce that, sadly, this is where Dickens stopped his work forever. Now comes the time for audience participation! Firstly, the audience votes on who Dick Datchery actually is. Unfortunately, the audience does not vote for the company actor who was actually playing Datchery and Drood, and that actress leaves in a huff. Next, the audience votes on the murderer, who is not yet revealed. Once all the tabulations are complete, the cast returns and sings a song to welcome the audience back into the action and to the conclusion of the mystery. Puffer finds Rosa and confesses that she used to be her nanny, but that she turned to prostitution and then selling opium to make money. 
Puffer continues to reveal the identity of Datchery, as chosen by the audience. It is either Bazard, Chris Sparkle, Helena, Neville, or Rosa. Whoever that evening's Datchery is sings a song explaining their motive for hunting down Drood's killer, and they reveal that they followed Jasper back to his home where they found the clasp that Rosa had given Drood. Jasper admits to strangling Drood under the influence of laudanum that he had poured into the wine at his dinner's party. Plot twist! The drunken Dirtles returns to dispute Jasper's claims. Dirtles witnessed the murder of Drood and knows the true killer. Dirtles reveals that it was whoever the audience decided it was, which is either Bazard, Chris Sparkle, Helena, Neville, Puffer, Roser, or Dirtles himself. Whoever the murderer is sings a song saying that, for various reasons, they were trying to murder Jasper and not Drood. Whoops. That's true for everyone except Dirtles, who, if voted as the killer, was actually just drunk and thought that Drood was a ghost who he strangled. Totally makes sense. Absolutely. The audience can vote for Jasper as the killer, and if they do, Dirtles does not interrupt Jasper's initial confession. But after all these dramatic reveals, a happy ending is still needed, so the chairman asks the audience to choose two lovers from the remaining cast to come forward, declare their love, and sing a song. Plot twist. Again! Suddenly, the very much alive Edwin Drood emerges from the crypt that's conveniently nearby, to reveal what really happened on the night of his disappearance. He was indeed attacked, but he was only stunned, not killed. Then Jasper dragged him to a crypt and left him for dead. Upon waking, Drood fled to Cloisterham, but decided to return in order to see who it was that wanted him dead. Finally, Dickens' great mystery is at an end, and Drood urges the audience to hold on to life, and the whole ensemble comes together to tell the audience to read the writing on the wall. Whatever that means. So I feel like you and I pretty much had the same reaction to this show. It's a show. It exists. It's not bad. It's not good it's just a show yeah yeah that is accurate i mean it's cute it's fun the audience engagement is neat i guess um but the the plot you know in large part because this is based on a novel that dickens never finished is kind of eh and the music is fine like it's not bad music it's not great music it it has its moments where it can be charming and interesting but as a whole it's i don't want to necessarily say it's one note because i don't know that uh, that's a hundred percent accurate in describing it it just is It comes off to me as very generic Broadway trope music. It's what you expect to hear from a Broadway musical in the mid to late 80s 
that's not Phantom or Les Mis or Miss Saigon or insert mega musical here. It's almost meant to be a throwback to kind of the, the, the late golden age of the 60s and the 70s. It doesn't really achieve that. It just comes off as just a very vanilla taupe wall of a musical. Like, it's there, it's sturdy, it's fine, but it's not particularly inspiring. Yeah, I think maybe calling it a wall of a musical is a little bit to its discredit, but it's not a a gleaming marble column of the musical theater pantheon, shall we say. That's fair. your, Your comment about it not being one note, but being kind of generic is is fair and accurate. It is also um, repetitive. While there might be different styles of music, there's a lot of repetition of either songs or motifs throughout the course of the show that um, don't necessarily musically merit repetition. Yeah, I mean... There are things I do enjoy about this show. I actually think it's clever how we approach the end of what Dickens wrote, and they they try to be charming in the way they work that into the show, and then it leads to the audience participation. I know, and this is this is an anecdote more among the classical world, and I I don't even know if this is apocryphal or not, but it's a situation that reminds me of what they're trying to do here. Um, Mozart's Requiem famously one of the last works if you um of of mozart and if you believe the play amadeus and the subsequent movie it is that it is the the piece that he wrote that killed him um it may have been salieri it may have been the flu it may have been a mysterious lover we don't know in reality we totally do know it was totally like the flu but you know that doesn't that doesn't make a good ending to a play but now fast forward a couple of centuries and there's this apocryphal story of Arturo Toscanini conducting the, the Requiem, which was unfinished at the time of Mozart's death and completed by one of his students. But what Toscanini did in this performance is he got to the point where the last note that we know Mozart had actually written sounds and he stops everything and he turns to the audience and he goes, this is where the master put down his pen. And then he continues and he finishes the work. And, you know, of course, everyone's like, oh, Toscanini, he's so brave. And, you know, he's, he's so deep and, 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 and everything. It's kind of that same attitude here. They're very upfront with, okay, yeah, this is where things kind of go off the rails because from here on out, we're making this crap up and you're going to help us make this crap up. And so that's the, then you get the whole idea of the audience voting and the participation. And on the surface of it, it, it's a cool idea, yet they still somehow manage to make it land. Like the concept yeah. of it's great. The execution not as well. I wonder so I've 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 worked on this show and I think in the moment when you are actually an audience member being pulled into the participation it is perhaps not as uh meh 
inducing as it is if you were just listening to this piece. I, that you know what that's a good it's something I hadn't considered. You you bring up a valid argument there. But you know, I think the thing with this show is it's its approach to everything is pretty campy. And I don't say that to be critical. It's musical. We love camp. Mm -hmm. But I think to make this show successful, you do really have to lean in hard to the camp of it all. Like you can't shy away. You just have to own that we are in for a fairly ridiculous evening's entertainment. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I think I would feel a little different if, and I, I will fully admit my experience with this show is I have seen it, I have listened to it, I've never actually directly worked on it, and so my reaction is somewhat muted in that regard. Um, I'm also the, the prototypical, when I go to the theater, I always sit in the center of the row so that any type of audience participation I have a safety buffer from. No cats walking down the aisle can touch me or, or, or anything, or I can't get pulled into the aisle to dance or, or like, nope, nope, just let me be the audience, you do the show. And so I, I will fully admit, like, the idea is cool, but I am, I am also a notorious introvert in that sense. That you're, you're the man in chair. I am the man in chair. Yes. That, you know what? That is, that is a great way of putting it. So this show is another show in what is starting to feel kind of like a trend of the shows that we've talked about where the music lyrics and books are all written by one person or like a, a writing partnership. And it brought up an interesting question in my mind, which is, do theater creators benefit from having a team of people that they're working with or from having outside voices? Or can these shows that are written by individuals essentially actually really be great hits? I think as, as, as I love to answer questions that like this that you pose, my answer is a very qualified it depends. Um, well, I think that's this, fair. In this case, yes. Um, nothing against Rupert Holmes. The Pina Colada song is fantastic. Absolute classic. But that is kind of his pre-Broadway experience, and I and I don't in 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 my 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 five minute searching of of Rupert Holmes. I don't know that he had much experience writing for Broadway or has since had much experience writing for Broadway. Like, you know, it's one of those, he popped out into the universe, birthed Edwin Drood, and then went back to, you know, being his own version of Clark Kent. Um, and as a consequence, it, yes, this show could have benefited from an outside voice. Um, if you're talking about someone like Stephen Sondheim or Jonathan Larson or, um, you know, a handful of other people who have the experience and who have the history, I feel like it's a little bit more permissible because they also have had that experience in the past of working with other voices. And so, you know, that's, that's shaped their experience, that's shaped their background so that when they do 
have these individual shows where they are literally the the book, the music, the lyrics, there's at least the idea that there was a voice at some point. Yeah, well, and I think Mm -hmm. even in, in, in those settings, there are other people. And I think if it's a show that's going to be written by one or even two people, you're probably relying more on your producers and your directors. Like we think about Sondheim shows, we think about them as being with Hal Prince. So right. even if Sondheim is the creator, Hal is there helping him to, to guide the vision or James Lapine, like there, there are people who are involved. And I think if you're a sole creator, then you're really relying on your fellow collaborators to help you shape a great vision and no shade to any of the people I'm about to list, but uh, I'm not super familiar with Wilfred Leach as a director. And Michael Starobin is mostly an orchestrator not so much a music director so perhaps uh and with michael sorobin it's interesting because this is actually one of two credits he has on broadway as a music director the other being the 1987 production of the night which i can tell you absolutely nothing about beyond the fact that it was in 1987 and it was called the night because an internet search brings up almost nothing about it. So it's not like, you know, he was here um, music directing, you know, top tier shows. Now, to be fair, in a purely objective sense, Edwin Drew did do well. It was nominated for nine Tony Awards. It won five. That's respectable for any show. And we've talked about show better shows on this podcast that have won no awards or have been nominated for very few if none and of course honestly tony's are not an indicator of a quality of a show it is as much an indicator of the marketability and the popularity of a show while they do strive to recognize artistic merit to deny that there's any commercial incentive therein would be naive um and so by that rubric, the show did okay. Um, but as you said, Michael Starobin is much more known as an orchestrator and a rather brilliant orchestrator too. Uh, chances are if it's been a hit in the last 15 to 20 years, he has been one of five or six orchestrators that's worked on. Um, he has done some absolutely brilliant work He was the orchestrator for uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is this almost operatic, massive score that is just absolutely beautiful. Funnily enough, and you brought this up during our prep work, even with his his background, he didn't actually orchestrate this show. Even though he music directed, someone else did the orchestrations for The Mystery of Edwin Trude. So I had to look it up just because I felt bad about making a claim without knowing anything. So I, I, I did a quick search on Wilfred Leach. Tony Award-winning American theater director. Okay. Very, very reputable. Probably the credit that stands out looking at his list that we would know most instantly is he is the person responsible for the Kevin Klein and Linda Ronstadt Pirates of Penzance. 
which I do not say entirely as a point of endearment. I mean, I know that will offend some people, but I don't know that it. That's not my pirates, but it's not. It's not the worst pirates out there, and I mean, I do love me some Kevin Klein, and so I. Well, I, I love to, Linda Ronstadt, but I don't necessarily need to see her in Pirates of Penzance. You know what? Fair. And to be fair, that is the show that introduced the world to the marimba in Pirates of Penzance, which is funny because that's the only thing I remember about the orchestration is that it basically needs a dedicated marimba player. Which, is it a marimba or is it a xylophone? I, I thought or it was a marimba. Both? There could be both. It could be both, but... For those of you who are not intimately familiar with Pirate, um, excuse me, um, Gilbert and Sullivan, the mallet key percussion of the xylophone and marimba is not exactly prevalent in their orchestration. And by not exactly prevalent, John means they literally never used that instrument. <laughs> Perhaps had never even heard of those instruments. I mean, you're probably right. Um... Meanwhile, <laughs> okay, so we've okay, we, we've been a little bit down. The, the show is not bad. Like you should go listen to the yeah. show when we're done. And actually, one of the things that I think is really cool about this show, since we've just spent a little bit of time talking about opera, is that uh, this show features a prominent pants role, which is a situation that you see a lot in opera. And John and I were talking before we started recording. We can't really think of another time where you see it in a musical. And so what, what a pants role is, is it's a female actor playing a male role, traditionally done to demonstrate youth in, in the opera tradition. You have a lady singing a, a, a boy part so that they sound younger because the voice is higher. Um, and it's kind of a similar situation here in that Drew, the character of Drew, the young man, is is played by a female member of that music hall royale company. Yeah, and it, it we were going back and forth a little bit. And I mean, of course, we can think of a million different opera versions, whether it's Carabino in uh, The Marriage of Figaro, whether it's, you know, Rose and Cavalier, uh, Richard Strauss opera, where, you know, you actually have this beautiful trio in the last act between... Uh, the marshalin, her love interest, and um, a third woman. They're all women, but it's actually supposed to be dramatically a woman, uh, two women and a man. Um, and it's absolutely beautiful. And it's it, like, I understand why, like you said, youthful vigor, but also to give you that extended range. Um, other than a couple of musicals where you have a woman playing a man as part of a bit or you know in the case of like victor victoria which is a woman playing a man playing a woman and that's the primary plot point there are honestly zero at least as far as as we were able to find of honest to god trouser rolls pants rolls in music theater where a woman is playing a man and that's it it's it's it there, there's no plot point around it we're not supposed to secretly find out she's a woman at some point or you know anything like that it's 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 unique which is cool like i i appreciate that i appreciate kind of this classic trope being brought into the broadway vernacular 
even if it didn't even remotely catch on and as far as we can tell has never been done since um it's it's a cool little feather for their cap yeah and i think it's effective in helping to maintain that show within a show aspect of this musical because you can imagine that like okay these are the people we have in the music hall royale so who's going to be drewed well i guess it, it has to be you because it can't be anyone else so it can it can add a layer to the performance of the show that i think is to its credit i am right there with you a question for you so we've talked about the audience participation in the second act and how the audience gets to vote on who the killer was and they get to vote on the couple at the end. When you're doing this show, do you, as a, as a, a, a theater producer, do you look at the votes for when an audience votes for Jasper and say, hmm, I don't know if this is necessarily a valid choice? Because if, if the audience does vote for Jasper, who is the bad guy, basically the the show concludes with jasper confessing and then we go to the end like the whole first major twist of jasper thought he did it but it really wasn't jasper it was blah or it was x or it was y or it was z and we get that first little kind of fun twist but if the audience does end up voting for jasper we don't get that um the the sole twist really ends up being Oh, well, actually, Drew wasn't dead. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> Which we'll get to in a minute. Yes. But the question at point is, do you, as you're tabulating the votes, count the votes for Jasper? And I think I, 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 I'm torn on this because the audience member in me wants to say, I voted, you have to count my vote. But the show is a much better show if Jasper is not the murderer and i think that's that whole reason the song where they sing don't fall back on your assumptions exists is to try to encourage your audience to not just assume that the bad guy is the bad guy because if you don't then the show gets better I, it's tricky i you know i think you have to count the votes that you get i think that's the pact you're making with your audience and so then you're relying on your audience to be interesting and to not just go with the obvious, which could work or could not. And I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm also of two minds here. I think it's more fun when Jasper isn't the killer because then you get another song and it's fun because then even when you get to like Dirtles and it's like, yeah, I, 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 I was drunk. I thought he was a ghost. And so, yeah, I took my shot. <laughs> Oops, you know, and it's, I, it's quite, quite frankly, in my production of this show, Dirtles is always going to be the killer because I think his motive that he thought it was a ghost that he strangled is hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, it, it's funny because we reference Gilbert and Sullivan. I mean, like that's totally a Gilbert and Sullivan twist right there because it's it's asinine, but it's hilarious at the same time. And you don't even have the option for that, you know, if you know you have a common sense audience who's like of course jasper did it he he's you know he's the bad guy so of course he did it but i'm also like you in the sense that well you know what damn it if the audience votes for jasper well that's who the audience voted for 
it, it's kind of funny because I so recently I just finished a production of Marvelous Wonderette up here at the theater. And there's also supposed to be audience participation, which, of course, because we're in the time of COVID, we had to modify slightly. But in spoiler alert for a show that doesn't have much of a plot, but is really fun. Um, the voting's rigged. The same person wins every night. And it's not even like the theater, as a theater, we decided to rig it. Like it is written in the show that the same person wins every night. And I mean, that's one way to ensure you can end the act the way you do. Because in the case of Wonderette, it's actually in the first act, not the second. Um, it's a great way to ensure that you always end with the same song every night. But here it's not. Here it, it's open. And, and I guess we need to consider honoring that. Whether you think it's a good choice or not, you have to honor that because that's what is there. Yeah. Uh, two two comments here. This is sort of, this Wonderettes thing strikes me as like the opposite of getting rid of the last audience participation speller in Spelling Bee, where it's like, no, we don't actually care about you. We're, we're just going to dismiss everything. Mm -hmm. And I think the audience participation is arguably what Edwin Drew does best as a show. Agreed. And if that's one of the strengths of your show, then you have to own what your audience gives you. I, I, just, I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Just, you know, don't be dumb audience members. Okay. So let's take a second now as we near the end of this episode and talk about the ending. Realizing that, of course, they're making it up and there is no Dickens to guide us. I, you know what? I'm not even going to be bothered by the fact that Drood emerges from a crypt that just happens to be around and he's not dead. Like, that's fine. That probably could have happened in the original anyway because, you know, that kind of stuff happens. This last song, uh, which features prominently the, read, the, the lyrics that encourage you to read the writing on the wall, that makes no sense. Like, I do not understand what the message of the final song is. And it's like this big triumphant song. It feels really intense. It's like, it's the music that a show should end on. But the content of the song is almost nonsensical to me. Yeah, I'm with you. It almost feels like a very ham-fisted way to insert a moral into the story. It, it strikes me as a convention that actually... I don't know if you're familiar with this, but probably most of the people who listen to this show are um, early South Park episodes always ended with one of the principal characters kind of doing like this monologue at the end about what they should have learned from the situations of the episode and stuff like that. And it was always tangentially related and okay, you could kind of see it and it was done for humor and that's fine. I feel like that's kind of what this song is trying to do to the musical. The problem is that it comes out of out of nowhere. I mean, so I mean, here's here's some of the lyrics. Um, I've read the writing on the wall, and the greatest mystery is not the history of Jasper Drude in one and all. Um, I have met my maker and returned. What advice I'm giving to all those living is just to learn what I have learned. 
Life is dear. There can be no victory and defeat. If outnumbered, beat a faster cheat to the nearest shelter and dig in. When you live, you win. Um. Okay. So, so, um, wait, is is the moral here? Don't die. Well, and and but that's just it. Yes, and like was was. Did I miss it? Was Druid in constant fear for their life the entire show? Or was Druid like, I'm going to live forever. I don't fear death. Like, did, did I, did I miss that? Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know what to tell you, John. I think we're the same mind here, but it is, I think it leads to the frustration that we talked about at the beginning of our discourse on the show. It's just, just like it, 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 it has great moments. And then it does stuff like this that just make no sense. Yeah. Like, maybe this is me being cynical. I know, shocker. But I don't know that this show needed a moral. Like, it it doesn't need the, this is what you should have learned from this show. Because what you learn from this show is that Charles Dickens didn't finish Edwin Drood. And that on the surface, they actually had a kind of clever way to account for that. Like, it's... Not every show needs to have a moral. And no, but what it what what it did need was a conclusion. Yes, and I, like if you were to just listen to this song without the lyrics, this is a conclusion. This is how a musical should end. It's big. It's upbeat. It's intense. It's got everyone singing. It's very like yeah, jazz hands. The end. Mm-hmm. It's just those lyrics don't make any damn sense. Right. It has the same impact if they had replaced every lyric in the song with someone going la 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 and it would have had the same amount of impact like i feel like it needs an almost like spamalot-esque ending like parody song where they just sing like this is the end very dramatically exactly no that 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 is that is it 100 percent um this show i mean as present as it is is you know and and, and i put it like squarely in the middle like i said at the beginning it's not bad it's not good but the one thing it doesn't do and it thanks to the lyrics of the finale is it doesn't stick the landing you you walk away going huh not you know you don't have the warm and fuzzy reprise of guys and dolls you don't have like you said that that reprise of find your grail from spam a lot or you know you hate huh the reprise that you hate just just, yeah, just no, reminding you hey, look no i'm no but it sticks the landing whether i like it or not is irrelevant it makes a modicum of sense and it's a satisfying conclusion to the show my quibbles with it notwithstanding but I, like in just i'm even thinking more from a generic standpoint it's a button on the show um south pacific going back to to honey honey bun right it's it's a button on the show it is conclusive it is finale it is ending you can explain it here we get some good music not great music we get some good music we get the technical side of what a finale to a broadway musical should be and we get the wordy equivalent of la 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 it doesn't stick the landing and on that note, is there anything else you'd like to add about this show, John? There 
is not really much left for me to say. So no, I'm good. Yeah. Uh, in spite of everything we've just said for the last, what feels like uh, 40 minutes, this is not a bad show. And I think, you know, listen to it if you like. There's a couple versions out there. There's the original Broadway cast recording. And then there's also a 2013 revival that is also perfectly fine. But uh, I think if you have the chance, go see this show live. I think it'll be more enjoyable than if you're just listening. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.